You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 12, given on January 12, 1921. I'd like to begin today by pointing out that our studies hitherto have led us to a specific result. We have drawn attention, on the one hand, to the movements of the heavenly bodies. And though it still remains for us to study them concretely, we have at least gained a general idea that we should focus on a specific configuration of cosmic bodies in motion. Meanwhile, we've also been drawing attention to the formation of the human constitution, and incidentally, from time to time, to the formation of animals and plants. We'll have to do more of that, adducing such things in support of our argument. Mainly, however, it's the human gestalt that we've contemplated, and in so doing we have divined that the formation of the human constitution is, in some way, related to what finds expression in the movement of celestial bodies. We want to formulate our theorems as carefully as possible. Yesterday I showed that wherever we look in the human organism, we find the formative principle of the looped curve or lemniscate, save for the farthest ends of the spectrum, namely the polarity between radius and sphere. Thus, in the human body, we perceive three formative principles, see figure one. The sphere, with its activity directed primarily inward, the radius, and between these two the looped curve, or lemniscate. In order to judge these formative principles in the human organism correctly, you must think the pure lemniscate with variable constants, if you'll forgive the paradoxical expression. Where a curve normally has constants in its equation, we must think variables. The variability is most clearly evident in the middle region of the human organism. If we juxtapose the structures of the pairs of ribs and the adjoining vertebra, then we see that in the vertebra the one half of the lemniscate is very much condensed and pressed together, while in the pair of ribs the other half is pulled apart, see figure 2. But we mustn't be misled by this difference. The underlying formative principle is nevertheless this same lemniscate. We simply have to imagine that what is widened with regard to space when matter is attenuated, as it were, in the paired ribs, I mean those which close via the sternum, is balanced out in the vertebra via the compression of the matter. Now let's follow the human gestalt upward and downward, from this middle region. Above we find the vertebra bulged out into a wide cavity, see figure 3, 
while the remaining branches of the lemnus gate seem to hide, nestling away, so to speak, in the internal formative process. We find that they become indeterminate. Going downward from the middle region here, see figure 2, we contemplate, for instance, the attachment of the lower limbs to the pelvis. In all that opens downward from this point, we find the other half of the loop fading away. Thus we have to conceive the lemniscate as inwardly mobile, governing the middle region of the human constitution. Only the formative forces shaping it must be so imagined that in the one half of the lemniscate the material forces become, as it were, more attenuated and the loop widens, while in the other it contracts. Further, we have to imagine that from this middle region upward, the portion of the lemnus gate, which in the vertebra was drawn together, bulges and widens out, while the other downward opening portion vanishes and eludes us. So, it is the case that as you go downward from the middle region, the closed loop diminishes and fades away, while those portions of the curve which disappear as you go toward the head are prolonged below in that they join up with the radial principle, as it were. See figure 4. If we can find a way to follow the inherently mobile lemniscate imaginatively, and if we can think the formative principle of this inherently mobile lemniscate as combining for us with those forces which are either spherical or radial with regard to the center of the earth, then we will have established the presence of a system of forces that we can regard as fundamental. By forces I don't mean anything hypothetical. The word refers solely to that which expresses itself through the inner formative activity. Then we'll have established a system of forces that we can conceive as underlying all the formative processes that create the human organism's characteristic gestalt. Corresponding to this, we also find in cosmic space, in the movement of celestial bodies, a remarkable configuration of these movements. In yesterday's lecture, we recognized in the planetary loops the very same principle outside us which is the formative principle within us. Now let's follow this loop-forming principle in greater detail. Isn't it interesting that Mercury and Venus make their loops when the planets are in inferior conjunction, that is, when they are roughly between the Earth and the Sun? In other words, their loop occurs when what the Sun is for humans, if I may put it so, is enhanced by Venus and Mercury. As against this, when we look for the loops of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, we find them occurring when the planets are in opposition to the Sun. This polarity of oppositions and conjunctions will also correspond, in some way, to a polarity within the forces that form the human constitution. If we hold the thought that in the case of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars, the loops will be especially active just because the loops appear in opposition, then we'll be led 
to relate the formation of loops in the orbits of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars to the aspects of the human constitution that are influenced very little by the Sun. For the loops happen, mind you, when the planet is in opposition. On the other hand, inasmuch as Venus and Mercury form their loops when in conjunction, the formation of loops in their orbits must be related in some way to those of the principles shaping the human constitution that are effected by the sun, or by what underlies the sun. We shall therefore conceive the sun's influence to be in some sense reinforced by Venus and Mercury, while it withdraws, as it were, in face of the superior planets, so-called. The latter, precisely during loop formation, bring to expression something that bears directly, not indirectly, upon humans. If we pursue this line of thought and bear in mind that radius and sphere stand in a polar relationship to one another, then we need only recall the form that comes to manifestation in these movements, and we will then have to say to ourselves, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn must be related to one another because their spheres correspond to one another right where they proceed to form loops. That is to say, when, in a matter of speaking, the sphere-forming process expresses itself. Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, not to speak of further planets, must exert their influence upon the part of the human constitution that's related to the forming of a sphere, that is, the head. In contrast to this, because they are indeed the polar opposite, the movements of Venus and Mercury will somehow find expression in the opposite pole of the human constitution, opposite to the forming of the head. That is, what de-parallelizes itself from the spherical formation and makes itself parallel to the radial formation. Where the one part of the lemniscate diminishes, and the other grows into the limbs, as it were, into a purely radial development, we have to look for the relation to Venus and Mercury. This in turn will lead us on to say, in the superior planets, which make their loop when in opposition, it's the loop that matters. It depends upon the degree of intensity with which they form the loop. In the case of the inferior planets, Venus and Mercury, what's essential is that they wield their influence by virtue of what's not the loop, that is, by the remainder of the planet's path. If you think of a lemniscate like this, see figure 5, say in the case of Venus, let me draw it diagrammatically, you will have the right picture if you imagine this part such that it becomes ever less effective the further down it goes toward the bottom. That is to say, what closes in the orbit of Venus no longer closes in its effects. Rather, it runs out into something like parabolic branches in a way that corresponds to just what we see in the formation of the human limbs, where the vertebral form gradually diminishes in all the ways previously described. This diminishment corresponds precisely to the loop of the orbit, which is not fully maintained. It only indicates the direction but cannot hold it. So, what closes with reference to the path of Venus in the heavens falls asunder in the formation of the human constitution. 
Thus, to sum up, what underlies the formative principle in the human constitution, fundamental to that gestalt but constantly modifying it, calls forth the metamorphosis from the head to the limbs and their associated metabolic processes. And this must correspond to the polarity in the universe between those planets that form their loops in conjunction and those that form them in opposition. And between the two is then the sun itself. But now something quite definite emerges from all this for us. What emerges is that also with respect to the qualitative effects we have just confirmed, we have to recognize in the sun's path something that is even as to its form, midway between what we experience as the forms of the superior planetary orbits and the forms of the inferior planetary orbits. Hence, we're compelled to assign what expresses itself in the path and movement of the sun to that part of the human constitution which falls between the structures of the head and those of the metabolism. In other words, we must attribute to the rhythmic system some relation to the path of the sun. We therefore have to imagine a certain antithesis or polarity between the paths of the superior and of the inferior planets and in the sun's path a quality midway between the two. Now, there is a very evident and significant fact regarding both the sun's path and the moon's. Follow the movements of the two heavenly bodies, and you'll find that neither of them makes any loop. They have no loop. Thus, we have to contrast, somehow, the relation to humans and to earthly things generally, of sun and moon on the one hand, and of the loop-forming planetary paths on the other. The planetary paths with their characteristic loops quite evidently correspond to that which makes vortices and vertebra, to that within the human constitution which takes the form of a lemniscate. If we simply contemplate the human gestalt and think of its relation to the earth, we find ourselves compelled to connect what is radial in the human gestalt with the path of the sun, just as we connect what is lemniscate in form with the typical planetary path. You see then what emerges when we are able to relate the entire human being to the starry heavens, rather than just the human organ of cognition. What emerges is that, on the one hand, we have to seek something that corresponds to the path of the sun in the vertical axis of the human constitution, while on the other, we have to seek something lemniscate within us, corresponding to the planetary orbits, which are themselves lemniscate, although the specific form may vary. Something of extraordinary importance will follow from this. We must conceive once more that through our vertical axis humans are related to the sun's path. So, then, how shall we think of the other path, which also shows no loops, namely the moon's? Quite naturally, you need only look with open mind at the corresponding forms on earth in seeking what corresponds to the path of the moon. We shall be led to the line of which we spoke some days ago, the line that runs along the spine of the animal. And it is just this fact 
the correspondence of the human spinal axis to the sun's path and of the animal spinal axis to the moon's, to which we must look if we wish to understand the essential morphological difference between humans and animals. Thus it is that when we're seeking to discover the essential difference between humans and animals, the last thing we can do is remain within the earthly realm. Engaging in simple comparative morphology will not avail us. Rather, we have to allocate what we find in morphology to the entire universe. In this way, we'll also derive some indication of what must be the relative position of the sun's path and the moon's, or at least in a perspectival sense provisionally. One needs always to express oneself very cautiously. They must be so situated that the one path is approximately perpendicular to the other. The human vertical, therefore, or it would be better to say what corresponds to the main line and direction of the spine in the human being, is related to the sun's path. The morphological method we have been pursuing has revealed this meaningful correlation emphatically. Mindful of this, we must surely relate the sun's path itself to something that coincides in some way with the earth's radius. We must see the earth as moving in such a way that many of her radii coincide with the sun's path. This relationship will need to be defined more precisely in coming lectures. Yet this at least gives us a notion of it. The direction of the sun's path must be radial in relation to the surface of the earth. We have no alternative but to conclude that there is no way that the earth can be said to revolve around the sun. What has been calculated quite properly and conscientiously, of course, as the revolution of the earth around the sun, must rather be instead the resultant of some other set of movements. The many relevant details as regards the human form and its development are so very complicated that we cannot do justice to them in a course of lectures as short as this. But if you take seriously the morphological descriptions, the qualitative morphology I have been describing to you, what can be read out of the human form itself, you will see that the earth, in some sense, follows the sun. You will see that the sun races on ahead, as it were, and the earth follows along behind it. This then must be the essence of the matter. The earthly and the solar orbit in some way coincide, and the earth somehow follows the sun, making it possible, as the earth rotates, for the earth's radii to fall into the solar path, or at the very least to stand in a determinate relationship to the sun's path. Now, you may very naturally retort that all this is inconsistent with the prevailing astronomical paradigm. But that is not at all the case. It really isn't. As you are well aware, to explain all the phenomena, astronomy today must have recourse not only to the primary notion of a stationary sun, supposed to be at the focus of an ellipse along which the earth is moving, but also to a further movement of the sun itself in the direction of a certain constellation. If you picture to yourself the direction of this movement, 
then from the several movements of sun and earth, you may well be able to construct a resultant path for the earth, no longer coincident with the ellipse in which the earth is conceived to be going round the sun, but of a different gestalt, which need not be at all like the supposed ellipse. We shall pursue these new ideas gradually, but for the moment my point is that what I am telling you doesn't necessarily contradict the prevailing paradigm. What's far more important is the methodology, the way in which we've integrated the human gestalt into the system of the celestial movements. My purpose here is not to propound some astronomical revolution. What I am saying is not all that revolutionary. If you picture the Earth's movement something like this, see figure 6, and the Sun is also moving, you can well imagine that if the Earth is following the Sun in movement, it's not absolutely necessary for the Earth always to be running past the Sun tangentially. This is the case even in light of the prevailing paradigm. It may well be that the sun has already gone along this path, figure 6, then disappeared, and that the earth is following. Indeed, it is possible that if you envisage the hypothetical velocity that has been calculated for the sun's own movement, you will arrive at a very neat arithmetical result. It may be that the resultant you construct from the presumed movement of the earth and the presumed movement of the sun will yield a movement that conforms, even as regards velocity, with a prevailing astronomical paradigm. I want simply to point out that what I am propounding here is not unrelated to contemporary astronomy. On the contrary, it has a more fundamental relationship to the prevailing paradigm than do certain theories that have been devised by considering some movements but ignoring others. I'm not trying to foment some kind of astronomical revolution here. Let me say this quite emphatically, to keep people from inventing fairy tales. Rather, what I am trying to do is to integrate the forces that shape our human form with the movements of the celestial bodies, indeed with the very system of the cosmos. Moreover, I'd like to call your attention to the fact that it's not at all easy to bring together in thought our astronomical observations of the heavenly bodies and the accepted constructions of the orbits. For as you know from Kepler's second law, an essential factor upon which the forms of the orbits depend is the radius vectors and above all their velocity. The whole form of the path depends on the functionality of the radius vectors. If this is so, then it may very well be that under certain circumstances the form in which the planetary orbits seem to present themselves is illusory with regard to its merely external aspect. It might very well be the case that what we calculate from the velocity and length of the radius vectors here might not be primary magnitudes at all. They might themselves be only the resultants of the true primary magnitudes. If so, then the illusory image that arises must refer to something deeper underlying it. This assertion is not so far afield as you might think. Suppose that you wish to calculate the sun's exact position at a given time of day and on a given date in the way that modern astronomy makes such calculations. 
then you will actually need to do more than commence calculating on the basis of the simple proposition, quote, the earth moves around the sun, close quote. People have thought it strange that in the ancient astronomy, that of the mysteries, not the exoteric version, they spoke of three suns instead of one. They distinguished three suns. I have to confess that I don't find it so very remarkable. Modern astronomy also has its three suns. There is the sun whose path is calculated as the apparent inverse of the earth's movement round the sun. We find this sun within modern astronomy, don't we? That's the path modern astronomy calculates. And then astronomy has another sun, which is, of course, merely a thought construct with the help of which certain discrepancies are corrected. And then it has a third sun, with the help of which it recorrects discrepancies that persist after the first correction. Hence, modern astronomy also distinguishes three, the real sun and two thought constructs. It needs all three, because the result of the initial calculation doesn't accord with the sun's actual position. It's always necessary to make corrections. This alone should be enough to show you that we shouldn't build too confidently upon mere calculation. Other means are needed to arrive at adequate conceptions of the celestial movements, others than those employed in modern astronomy's attempts at calculation. Up to this point we have worked out what I'd like to call general ideas regarding planetary orbits. But we won't be able to determine them more precisely unless we're able to go further in our contemplation of terrestrial beings themselves. In order to do so, we need to take an unprejudiced look at certain aspects of the relationships among the various kingdoms of nature. One usually conceives this relationship linearly, mineral kingdom, plant kingdom, animal kingdom, and, I will add, the human kingdom. Some authorities would not admit the fourth, but that needn't detain us. The question now is, does this arrangement make any sense? Undoubtedly, it is foundational to many of our modern lines of thought. At least it was so in the golden age of the mechanistic paradigm. What one sees in such scientific disciplines today is something one might call desperation. But the habits of mind, however, remain the same as at their heyday, twenty or thirty years hence. The scientists of that time would have been content had they been able to follow up this series, mineral kingdom, plant kingdom, animal kingdom, humans, with the mineral kingdom as the simplest, and then deriving from it by some combination of mineral structure, the structure of the plant, then by a further combination of plant structure, the structure of the animal, and so on to the human being. The many thoughts that were pursued about the primal generation of living things, generatio equivoca, were they not eloquent testimony to the tendency to derive animate living nature from inanimate and ultimately from the inorganic or the mineral? To this day, I believe, many scientists would doubt if there is any other rational way of conceiving the interconnection in the succession of nature's kingdoms than by deriving them all ultimately from the inorganic, even where they culminate in humans. 
You will find countless papers, books, lectures, and so on, including highly specialized ones, claiming to be strictly scientific, the authors of which, as though hypnotized, are always looking at it from this angle. How, they inquire, can it have happened, somewhere at some time in the course of nature, that the first living creature came into being from some molecular distribution, that is, from something purely mineral in the last resort? The question now is, are they right at all to view the kingdoms of nature linearly in this way? Can it be done? Or if we do, are we doing justice to their most evident and essential features? Begin by comparing a creature of the plant kingdom with an animal. Taking together all that you observe, you won't find in the forming of the animal anything that looks like a mere continuation or further elaboration of what is vegetable. If you begin with the simplest plant, the annual, you may well conceive its formative process as extending in the perennial. But you will certainly not be able to detect in the organic principles of plant form and growth anything that suggests further development toward the animal. On the contrary, you are more likely to see a polarity, a polar opposition between the two. You can apprehend this polarity simply by taking hold of one of the most obvious phenomena, namely the contrasting processes of assimilation, the plants and the animals' completely different relationship to carbon, and the characteristic use that is made of oxygen. Needless to say, it's crucial that we contemplate these phenomena in the right way. You can't just say that animals inhale oxygen while plants exhale oxygen and inhale carbon. It is not as simple as that. Nevertheless, the process of plant formation, taken as a whole within the context of organic life, stands in polar opposition to the animal in its relationship to oxygen and carbon. The easiest way to put it is perhaps to say what happens in animals in that the oxygen becomes bound to carbon and the carbon dioxide is expelled is actually the opposite of a formative process, an unformative process, you might say. It is unformative in the sense that it has to be sublated if the animal is to survive. The same is true of humans. But the same thing needs to be built up in the plant. Consider that the process of excretion in animals, the things of which animals must rid themselves, are what constitute the formative process in plants. There you can see a polar opposition that's as clear as day. You can't possibly derive the process of animal formation by imagining a linear extension of the process of plant formation. But by inverting the process of plant formation, you can imagine what needs to be hindered in the formative processes of animals. Carbon has to be taken away from animals by means of oxygen in the form of carbon dioxide. Turn it precisely the other way around and you'll readily conceive the plant forming process. Hence you can't get from plant to animal by going on in a straight line. On the other hand, you can, without false symbolism, imagine here an ideal mean or midpoint, on the one side of which you see the process giving rise to plants, and on the other the process giving rise to animals. 
What I am describing is a process of bifurcation. See figure 7. Let's represent what is midway between as some kind of ideal mean or midpoint. If we now extend the plant forming process further in a straight line, we arrive not at the animal but at the perennial plant. But when we arrive at the perennial plant, something confronts us that we need only follow for an appropriate distance before we arrive at something different. If you think the perennial plant imaginatively in this way, you'll be compelled to picture what lies in a certain sense within the continuation of this developmental stream of the perennial plant as a path leading toward mineralization. If we then seek the polar opposite in the other branch of the bifurcation in the formation of the animals, then someone who was following the schema would seek to extend that other branch, but proceeding in the same way wouldn't represent the polar opposite. Rather, you have to imagine, in the process of plant formation, I see an extension. Therefore, in the process of animal formation, I will have to extend negatively. I will have to retreat. I'll have to turn around. I have to imagine that the process of animal formation doesn't shoot out beyond itself, but rather lags behind its own becoming. Observe now what's already available in scientific zoology. In Selenka's researches, for instance, on the differences between animals and humans in their embryonic and subsequent development. Note how this development takes place in humans after birth, how it unfolds in the higher animals. Then you'll begin to get a concrete idea of this lagging. Indeed, we owe our human form to the fact that our embryonic development does not go as far as the animals, but rather lags behind. Thus, if we study the three kingdoms just as they reveal themselves outwardly without bringing any hypothesis to bear, we find ourselves obliged to draw a strange mathematical line which tends to vanish as we prolong it. This is what happens at the transition from animals to humans, while on the other side we have a line that continues to extend itself. See figure 8. Yet again we hit upon an extension of mathematics as such. In drawing this schema, you have to recognize a distinction that's purely mathematical. There are lines which, when continued, grow longer, and there are lines which, when continued, grow shorter. That is a completely valid mathematical idea. So if we want to represent the kingdoms of nature schematically, we have to do it in such a way that we begin with some ideal point from which the realms of plants and animals extend themselves after bifurcation. And then we have to extend the lines. But we have to extend the line corresponding to the plant kingdom such that it becomes longer as it's extended. And on the other hand, shorten the line representing animals as we extend it. I say again, this is a thoroughly mathematical concept. In this way we arrive at real relationships between the kingdom of nature, though we begin by simply juxtaposing them. The question now arises, and this is the only question that we now want to imagine that is important to answer. What, in reality, corresponds to the ideal point in our diagram? 
We may divine that just as the forming of the kingdoms of nature is related to this ideal point, so also must there be movements in the cosmos that are related somehow to something that corresponds to this ideal point in the middle. Let's reflect on all this until tomorrow. The end of Lecture 12